You've probably heard that phrase, art imitates life. But sometimes there are those among us who elevate that art form to something entirely different, something that not only makes us think deeply about life, but finds the beauty in those moments that are often seen as trivial and challenges the meaning in things that seem obvious. Enter Jessica Caremore, who is the CEO of More Black Press, the executive producer of Black Women Rock, founder of the literacy-driven Jess Caremore Foundation, and basically an incredible energy of a human being who's an internationally renowned poet, playwright, performance artist, producer. She's a recipient of the 2013 Alan Locke Award from the Detroit Institute of Arts. And we have her as our guest on the podcast today. Woohoo! So she's here to talk about her latest poetry collection called We Want Our Bodies Back, which is dedicated to Black Lives Matter activist Sandra Bland, who died in jail under suspicious circumstances following a pretextual traffic stop in 2015. We could not wait to talk about her poems, the meaning behind them, and what does art and creation look like in a year where we have largely been kept separate from each other and sometimes from inspiration as well. And um, spoiler alert, we didn't just talk about her book, but also about life in Detroit. And while it does make for a little bit of a longer episode, we wanted to leave in extras like how she takes care of herself, where she's found her inspiration this year, and so much more. And P.S. She reads one poem, which is amazing. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So Sarah and I started having these conversations about, you know, as moms, like, you know, hopes, dreams, but also our fears for our kids. And we realized that, you know, the fears that I had for my kids and hopes and how they're treated and how they move through society is very different than hers. You got black babies, honey. Yeah. You got brown, never black babies. I don't know what they look like, but they, yeah, they're not white kids. And, but we realized that a lot of people who were, you know, in sort of the same spheres that we were, were not having those conversations. And so we wanted to highlight those conversations and really bring narratives, not necessarily our narratives, but narratives that weren't being discussed and that are far from the dominant narrative of America at times into the forefront so that we can really address race and racism and systemic racism and privilege and oppression and all of those topics that a lot of people, in particular white people, white women, tend to shy away from, right? So this has been our platform for doing that. And we love having guests like you. Been my whole life. Like, my whole <laughs> and it's interesting and we can, you know, talk about it. But yeah, like for me, you know, it's been my work for my entire career. Like I've been rooted in my Blackness. It's been rooted in culture. It's been about fighting against police brutality, you know what I mean? It's been about preserving black and brown bodies. Like that's, and I'm from, born and raised in a very blackest city in the country, which is Detroit, which is the my favorite city in the whole world because of that reason, because I feel, you know, so deep. I was having a really interesting conversation last night. I have an Instagram show on Tuesday nights and I brought this guy that created this movement called uh, Make the Hood Great Again, kind of a response to Trump's bullshit. And it's taken off. It's amazing. He's, it's make Black Farms again, make Joy Road great again, which is the street I grew up near. And talking about safety, you know, like I have a tall, beautiful Black son, right? And yeah, you're beautiful. Not my favorite. <laughs> Your homework. And you worry about just my whole concern in Detroit was like, how do I keep him safe? Is it private school that makes him safe? Well, in some ways, yes. So private school gave him smaller classrooms, diverse, whatever, classrooms. But with private school came very racist teachers. Came a lot of white women in front of my son, trying to make him do things he didn't want to do, like the Pledge of Allegiance. Or a teacher saying, go stand in the corner for three minutes and be quiet. You know, things that she would never want any teacher to task her son to do. And so, the, you know, safety in some ways. And then I felt like for the last, I mean, he's now in, a freshman in high school. And the best thing that happened to him in eighth grade is uh, during the pandemic was him getting away from his teachers. Because then he was actually able to excel virtually because he didn't have to deal with white teachers who didn't like black children. And you'd be surprised, like all these white educators who are in front of our children who don't love our babies. Whether they, it's because they don't like black people, brown people, they don't like, uh, maybe they like black girls. They don't mind girls, but they tend to really not like black boys. 
And these are some teachers even who ever have like relationships with black men. I find it like it's just some of it's just psychotic in, in a way where I'm like, when you do the back, because I do background checks on teachers, I would check in their Facebook page and I was like, okay, well, maybe you're not super racist because you seem to be around some people don't look like me or your children might even kind of look like me. Well, so what is wrong? And so it wasn't even just my son was black, my son also free. So certain black boys, they don't mind. They like quiet black boys who don't talk up, who don't question, who sit still, face forward, regurgitate information. Those kind of black boys kind of rock in private school. And they get scholarships. Like my son is, you know, he like, I call him light-skinned Tupac. I mean, you know, he's my kid. And so light-skinned Tupac is going to like push back. And he's a creative and he's a writer and a musician. So he likes to see social. So he likes to talk. But who doesn't like to talk? You know, so like the system is set up, you know, for him to fail. And if I wasn't his mother, he would be, to be honest. But it's, it's a journey. Like, I think the things that I have to think about, and I have women friends of all races. I have Asian friends, I have white friends, I have friends. I'm an artist, so we know all the things. Outside these Asian sisters, like, whatever. And, you know, we all kind of got the same thing in common. When you're a mother, you just want your kid to get a good education and be treated fairly. But the things that some of my white girlfriends, you know, will never understand, you know, is like, they don't deal with safety. Like my white girlfriend, she wanted me to take my son to this really prestigious private school here in Michigan because her son's going. And I was like, sis, my son can't go there. I was like, first of all, it's way out in the suburbs. I mean, I travel for a living normally. So like when I leave and get on the plane and fly away, I have to know that my son is safe. Do I feel safe with him surrounded by white people in the suburbs of Michigan? You see what's happening in this state. Hell to the no. Do I want to deal with parents that voted for Trump? Hell no. Do I feel like if something went down, my son is going to be safe in that school that's $35,000 a year or whatever it costs to go there? No, I don't. I feel safe because we live in a Black community in Detroit. So safety for me is I'm in a city that's predominantly Black. This neighborhood might have some issues, but I feel safer here during this. But maybe it's a false sense of safety, but there's definitely a sense of safety when like, you know, Things are going down and something like that. You see like the Confederate flag and some of like the Michigan militia with their armed at the, you know, front of our governor Whitmer. It's like shout out to our, you know, to Big Gretch, like directing our governor. My friend is Lieutenant Governor Garland. And so that was personal for me. I'm like, but, you know, they're not going to bring that to where I live, you know, off the lodge because everybody over here is strapped. So and so there's a different sense of and I don't feel disempowered, like being black. It's so funny. I remember years ago and I was talking, I went to South Africa and it was, I was staying with this woman, her name escapes me, but she's a very famous sculptor. Like her sculptures are like in the banks inside of South Africa, in Johannesburg. So I spent a few nights, me and my girlfriend crashed with her and we spent some time with her doing some work in South Africa and her daughter, she's a German Jewish woman. So her daughter got a hold of my first book while I was asleep. And I woke up, this little girl is sitting on the edge of my bed. And with like 2,000 questions for me, she had taken an indigenous name, which I thought was very sweet. I was like, well, you have a, you have a Native American name. That's, she did like a whole little thing and became like, a, she got like a naming ceremony and she, it was lovely. So, you know, she's exploring and she asked me, she said, why? I don't know how, I'm guessing she's might've been a young teenager, you know, maybe like 13 or 14 or something. And she said, why do you, you know, in South Africa, it's so hard, so hard for black people here you know, her mother's obviously an activist and she's in the mix and stuff. And so she's aware of the dynamics of apartheid. And she, I mean, they live in a big, beautiful house surrounded by like a huge fence. And they actually had been robbed as well. Had been like, I think family had been tied up, robbed. Like, so, you know, not hurt, but they had been robbed before. And so she understands the social economic reality and the brutal brutality of apartheid, I guess, in some ways, a conscious young, you know, European girl in South Africa and who's benefiting from apartheid, no doubt. Right. And she said, well, why do you blackness is so hard here? Why do you carry it, this burden so heavy in your work? You know, and I tell her, tell her I said, and I'm talking about blackness. It's I'm celebrating. It's not a burden. It's the thing that I was given that I celebrate the most because it's what makes me who I am. And I was like, and that's good. <laughs> so if I'm talking about it, it's not because it's a burden or it feels heavy. It's because it drives me. It makes me feel good and excellent, you know, despite racism and the things that are uh, white supremacy, white supremacist systems, like supremacy. Like, yes, those things are out there, but it doesn't shape who I am, right? It doesn't define me. I grew up so proud. I had my father who's from Alabama, self-made construction worker, Tom Moore, 
built this black girl up real strong. And so I'm not shaken by people's opinions from any place easily. And yeah, I mean, and so I just think there's this guy misconceptions. I'm not a victim. Let me say that. And I'm not a minority, which is the, like my least favorite word in the whole world. Like I hate the use of the word because most women in the world look like us. They look like brown and black girls. They look like Asian and African women, Afro-Asian, whatever the hell you want to call it. Most women on the planet are not from Europe. And so we have this false conception in America that white women and white men are the majority. And it's just this absolute huge lie that they perpetuate constantly. And by the use of the word minority incorrectly, it continues to perpetuate the lie that somehow they're the dominant species or dominant race. I'm like, no, your numbers are dwindling at this point. And the more people have babies with Indian folks, African folks, Asian folks, like, you know, it just becomes this other thing that's undeniable that the numbers of this country is one thing, you know, we're not the majority in this country, but we're the majority on the globe. And I'm a global woman. I see myself in women. I haven't gone anywhere from South Africa to West Africa to South America to Mexico to China where I haven't seen myself inside of other women's faces. And so that has informed me in such a way that that's how I walk in the world. I don't see myself separate from these other women. So yeah, that's long. I'm so sorry. I love that. You know, and I've heard, I have been catching myself using minority because I think you're the second person who's basically said, I don't like that word. And now I'm like, okay. I don't like BIPOC either. It's like another acronym. I get it. It's like, so, you know, being inclusive. I mean, because I'm all those things. I'm black, indigenous, people of color. That's me. <laughs> like I'm all those things, but I don't want to be called it. Like, don't call me that. Like I was in a meeting and people were like said BIPOC. Like, and I had to ask the person that was doing it respectfully. I said, could you please stop saying, just say black, indigenous, people of color. Like just say all the words. It's fucking lazy. Like, I don't want to be called an acronym and I definitely don't. I'm nobody's minority. Well, it's just false. This is false. I have tried to substitute or thought about using a substitute saying, like when I'm referring to the power structure, when it comes to the population, I say like marginalized community. Does that feel like a better word for you? Yeah, I don't even like that either. You know what I mean? So I'm just a troublemaker. You know, I just like to be called who I am. You know what I mean? Like I'm always comparing myself. I hear what you're saying. Yes, marginalized, disenfranchised. Because I don't feel disenfranchised at all. You know what I mean? And so I feel I walk in this world very empowered. And I just too often black and brown people are put into this category of being having less than and being marginalized and being the disenfranchised youth. That means black kids. Okay. Like that's a word for the black kids in the hood, disenfranchised youth. It's a fancy way to say kids who live in maybe in poverty or lower middle-class environments and go to public schools. I mean, don't have access to the same resources. Yes, but I mean, people are marginalized. That's not a lie. That's more spot on than minority. Minority is saying you're less than. And that's why I have an issue with it. Marginalized is saying this group is treated a different way because of, like women are marginalized. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. When it comes to like rights and men and, and power structure, absolutely. But yeah, so I think it's a better choice. You know what I mean? But I'm just hard, you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I appreciate that. It feels like I can breathe around that. That feels like a different and it places emphasis more on the individual. And what we always talk about is like, we need to hear people's stories. You have to look at the individuals and not always just rely on this gross generalization, exactly. which are helpful when you're looking at policies or trying to correct the wrongs. But we do need to honor the individual so much more than we do Absolutely. In, in this society without playing into individualism and this myth of like, pull up your bootstraps which is a whole nother conversation. But when we're talking about women, if you don't mind me asking, like as a woman, the idea of owning our bodies is powerful. And you describe the body your son occupies. And in your poems, like you open with this phrase of, if in fact we do choose to give up our bodies, and I use air quotes, when do we get to have our bodies back? The door to womanhood can only be entered by a man. Where is the exit? And that as a woman feeling that, it makes me feel a way. And then on top of that, you also really take a stand against the prejudices, not just against women and girls, but also against racism. And to me, I hear the forefront, like for you, this importance of seeing the intersectionality of this fight against both racism and sexism. And you really are inspiring more women to take a stand alongside you. So your book is entitled, We Want Our Bodies Back. And there's a poem in this. Can you describe that poem 
and the inspiration behind it. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, and that opening wasn't hard to write either, you know, because I talked about things I had never really even written about or talked about and how I felt about my body, right? And like when I realized it was mine, you know, and I think it's unfortunate that girlhood, the whole thing about girlhood is like you, you turn into a woman once you give your body to a man which is absolutely ridiculous, you know, um, that we have to give something up in order to become who we are. And yeah, we have to fix that part for our younger girls. But for me, you know, we want our bodies back. It's a lot of things. It's for Sandra Bland. The title poem is for Sandra Bland. And I didn't want people to stop saying her name. Sandra Bland, when I saw her YouTube videos, reminded me of all my girlfriends. I was like, she reminded me of myself. I was like, oh my God, look at this big mouth. That's me. When I get pulled over by a cop, I'm already irritated. You know what I mean? Like, especially if I wasn't doing anything and you're just pulling me over because I'm across eight mile or I'm in Dearborn. Okay. So I get it. So I'm a brown girl. I'm getting pulled over. And so I've been in those spaces and I know I was like, wow, I could easily have gotten tased. I could have easily, you know, and so it's for Sandra Bland, but it's for all of us. And the poem is like a rant. It's a call to action. You know, it's a prayer. It's, it keeps me sane. Like I wrote it and I put Nina Simone songs in between it because Nina Simone for me as a black woman artist in this country has been a model for me. And, you know, so I don't aspire to be a million billionaire. I make a good living as a poet and writer, which is kind of unheard of no matter what you look like in this country. Like as poets, you know, generally I looked at as people who don't have a house. <laughs> like We're just like these poor people who write poems, but you know, I've been able to be successful in that way and able to make a living as a poet and writer. But also the decisions I made, I mean, I'd probably have a bigger house and a lot more money if I made other decisions politically. Like I on purpose speak about Sandra Bland and her body. And I mean, I'm talking about, have you ever heard of Judith Jameson, Catherine Dunham? We know how to get our legs in the air. We know how to use our bodies to tell a story of middle passage of lynchings. You have always loved our bodies under your control. I mean, these are not easy poetry lines for people who are just looking to sip tea and have some poetry, you know? <laughs> like my poems are, they're attacking and they're claiming their bodies and they're saying that you can't have any more of our children, not just Sandra Bland, not just women, you can't have my son either. And like, that's been my fight. And so, and there's love poems in the book, you know, I always tell people like, there's a poem for Sonia Sanchez, who's one of my mentors there's, and who I love, who's amazing and 86 years old. And there's a poem for Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, who I got to meet Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, who are like icons of black theater. If your listeners don't know who they are, Google Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. And they were the mayor and mother sister in Spike Lee joint and in many other films. This poem's about gratitude. This poem's about survival. There's poems, I Can't Breathe is a poem in the book, which is crazy because you know, I wrote that before George Floyd made I Can't Breathe, I guess, three famous words. The book came out during the pandemic, March 30th. That poem was for Eric Gardner and Mike Brown. And it was about my, I went to Ferguson. I met Talia Kweli, who's an MC, good friend of mine, and one of my best friends. And Rosa Clemente, amazing Latina activist, one of my sheroes. And we met a bunch of artists out there who were tired of looking at Ferguson on fire. And I had done all this work in the juvenile detention centers there, St. Louis for like six years, prison performing arts and taking poems into jails and prisons and with the young people and with the women's prison in Vidalia. And I had to go. I was like, I have to go. I left my son. I mean, I'm a single parent. I may have a tribe, but I raised my son alone. And so I had to figure out <laughs> where my son's going to go. My mother, mom, I have to go to Ferguson. <laughs> Can you watch King for me? And I went. And the poem is really about motherhood. I read it at the only audience, well, I've done that poem before, but I did it in front of a real audience for my book at my Dave Chappelle's space in Yellow Springs, because Dave Chappelle set up this incredible artist colony. All of us just came. He built this stage in the middle of a cornfield. And I got to perform that piece for that audience, which is really healing for me. But that poem is, you know, about Mike Brown's body being left in the middle of the street to bleed out in front of all his friends and his peers and his neighborhood. I mean, that's, it's terrorism. So I write about terrorism and I write about love and I write about being a girl because I'm all those things. You know, my first books, you know, everything is black in my first books. Like everything is like black girl juice, black of the berry, black statue of liberty. And so, you know, I was black. And then, you know, then I grew up and evolved and, and became my voice really became very focused. Definitely on being a woman. I became a wife. I've been married 
more times than both of you. Uh, I have lots of earth children, I have an earth son, I have stepchildren from my um, two marriages. And so then, you know, again, and going through divorces and going through that thing and all those grow you up in a different kind of way. And I'm definitely, my voice is, it's my best book. It's my fifth book. So I've been running a small press since 1997, publishing Saul Williams, Asha Bandeli, Danny Simmons, Sharif Simmons. I've been pub- I started publishing all the New York poets when I was living there. And that's just my Detroit Black institution builder DNA. You know, like it's not good enough just to be a poet. So, you know, all the poems, there's poems for Aretha Franklin in the book. You have to get, you guys need the book. I need you to have the book. There's a poem called Mixed, which I don't know, you know, of women, since you are both, because, you know, of called yourself biracial or whatever. It's like, so mixed is a term I don't like either. <laughs> so, and that's up for debate. Because, I mean, maybe if I was Japanese and white, I might feel differently about it because that's a, a huge cultural difference, right? Because Japanese culture is a whole nother culture. So that's, to me, intercultural, you know what I mean? But it's so deep because I'm mean, like, it all kind of comes down to freaking hair. Like, I know this sounds really crazy, but I was like, I never had wash and go hair. You know, and like some of my kid friends who were like had a white parent, they washed their hair and then they could just like go outside like white girls. Like, I can't do that. My hair, I wash my hair, my hair turns into a humongous sponge afro. And I got my daddy Alabama red bone. It's just thick. It's a big head of lots, but it used to just be big old, big old nappy ponytails. And that's, you know, and I know it sounds silly, but it's so, comes <laughs> about your hair. Like in so many ways, like is your hair straight? You know, is your hair wash and go? But I didn't grow up mixed. But my mother is Canadian. Is my mother is English Canadian who was raised in Owen Sound. I'm um, excuse me, she's gonna kill me. She's raised in Ontario, but she's been in Detroit since she was 17. She's born in Wolverhampton, England. She came over. So my family is all my mother's side, all British Canadian. But we had a very, very. My father was a very wasn't a passive black man. He was a very, very. <laughs> he was like me, but a man and. So we grew up with this sense of blackness in the household, but we didn't like, my mother didn't call us anything. She wasn't like, oh, so you're biracial. And that's, she didn't do that. And I'm so grateful because I know parents that do that to their kids because she didn't want me to feel like I was different than any of the other black girls on the block because I wasn't. And when I got chased home, called a nigga by the white kids at the Catholic school I was going to, they didn't care about who my mom or daddy was. So it really depends on what your kids look like. We were definitely black. I was like one of the few black kids at San Alphonsus. And so with a lot of Polish kids. So, you know, getting chased home, they don't ask for your birth certificate. They don't see how intercultural are you? You still a nigga. And that's reality. You know what I mean? And so what I love about my mother is that she allowed me to become a black woman (laughs) without her interrupting the process. And she supported it. I'll never forget, I was at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and somebody asked me what my mother thought. I guess they knew who my mother was, or maybe they knew she wasn't a Black woman. And they said, what does she think about all your politics? I said, well, she's working my book table, so go ask her. And she was there working the book table. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, but she did also have two very lanky, tall, wild-ass sons first. So she had two boys first, and then she had me and my sister. So she had black men, you know, and she was the minority in the house. If you talk about minority, she was the minority. There was a whole bunch of black people in the house with her <laughs> and this little Canadian chick. And so, you know, everyone has the right, though, what I'm saying is to name themselves. If you want to say biracial, everyone has the right. I don't like labels being pushed on me. I feel like I have the right to like, you know, and I went after folks for Kamala Harris saying that, she, you know, <laughs> She don't even have a white parent. You know, this is not just white community now. Come on, this is black community. Questioning this sister who went to a HBCU, who is an AKA, who's clearly a black woman, who's clearly culturally black, let alone, you know, she's not, does, you know, I mean, one thing is she didn't even have a white parent. And I was like, I wish somebody will come for me telling me I'm not black. You know, hello, like, uh, like and what constitutes blackness? And, you know, like how black you got to be to be black. Like all of that is slavery. And, and Jim Crow is apartheid. I went to schools in South Africa. This is 10 years after apartheid, supposedly, right? I'm in South Africa. I'm in Soweto. I'm at a school where the black kids, who are basically dark-skinned black kids or whatever, went. And then I went to visit the school where kids who are colored go, or kids who look like me or you. 
go, right? And the difference was night and day. Like this, the way the schools look, the way the desks look, it was absolutely sick. I mean, to tell me like they would check nails, you know, they check your gums. So my brother, Billy, who's a dark skinned man, cause I have five brothers. My father had children before my mother and he's much older than her. So my brother, Billy couldn't, and I couldn't go to the same schools because we're in different complexion. So it's, I mean, when you think about like, imagine you had a brother or sister, right? And then can't go to the same school, but you're from the same father. And this is the sickness and I don't participate in shit like that. And I just, I don't operate in the world like that. And like when President Obama, questioning President Obama's blackness, you know, but I'm like, okay, let's talk about Lena Horne then. <laughs> like, absolutely. Let's talk about Harry Belafonte. These people, you know what I mean? Everybody, like blackness is expansive. So, you know, and then I grew up in Detroit, which is a very black city. And I just grew up being able to be a human. And so the human just naturally gravitated towards becoming this black woman and walking in that. And I never saw myself as anything else, you know. And so I give my mother credit for that. You know, she gave me my Alice Walker books and my Lorraine Hansberry books to be young, gifted and black because she saw that I was eating up all her books in the house. And she read a lot of memoir and fiction. So... I was, you know, talk my father a lot because he was such a big influence on me, but she was the quiet assassin, <laughs> to be honest, and all of it that allowed me to become a fully developed human without her own politics or her own thoughts about it. It never came up and it never has, you know, like, because she knows that the way the world sees me is going to be different than the way that they see her, unless her kids are there. <laughs> I think that's so critical for any listeners who don't understand that difference because, you know, in we, me, Sasha and I just are submitted our draft for a book and in it, the editors were saying, when we were identifying our children, I can say my kids are white presenting. Me, Sasha's kids are identified as black and that is how society sees you. It's how they look. Yeah. Cause if your husband's white and you're, you know what I mean? Even though the Asian is in there and you push that, I would say push that culture up in their babies, you know, but how people see them, if they're going to ha- have white privilege because of white skin, you know what I mean? Because how they look, you know, it's going to be different for them than a brown kid, you know? I mean, some it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous in 2020 that we're having this stupid conversation about differences and people being treated one way versus another way. Like, you know, I thought that by now we'd be like the Jetsons. I'm, y'all are probably too young to even know who the Jetsons are. No, I know the Jetsons. Damn Jetsons. Like, aren't we supposed to be like flying and, and, and aren't we supposed to be beyond this whole concept of race that was created to divide people? And it was all about economy and, and yeah, and just, it's, I want it to go away. You know, I want to, but it's not. And because it's so ingrained. And so when you hear a Donald Trump talking about systematic racism doesn't exist, this privileged ass white boy, talking about systematic racism doesn't exist. I'm like, are you serious? Like, you can't even talk about it because you don't have any concept of it. Like, you don't even know what system, because you privilege from it. You so, you know, so you just have to talk to your children. You know, that's all. And then speaking of that then, because so much of the pushback from people like that are, for example, for defund the police. They're like, well, (laughs) we're not trying to, you know, you can't defund them. We need police. And it misses the point of understanding what the movement is trying to accomplish. And I was curious as a poet, my understanding, words are important. The choice of words. We already talked about mix. We talked about, you know, not minority. How do you think that the choice of words shapes social movement and the acceptance of them? Yeah. I mean, that's though, you know, my son's 14. So he had debates with his friends about Black Lives Matter. Like, well, don't all lives, you know, that was the whole debate with all lives or like, well, we know all lives matter. And then you had, people had to go online and make videos to explain to white people why black lives matter was necessary because all lives aren't getting murdered the same way because all lives are not being valued the same way. Like this is an old adage. And it's so, but I guess people are just new to the party. Okay. New to the like (laughs) social justice party. So they had to like be taught these things that are like kindergarten level for me. It's fun, the police movement, and I know President Obama's getting hell because he's like, has said that this, he's worried that this is going to not help the Democratic Party. So the problem is for years, people have been trying to get this done without the slogan, (laughs) but nobody has done anything. So the reason why defund the police sounds so harsh and it's so people don't read and do research to know what the movement's about. And the defund the police movement is not about taking all the money away from all the police. And it's about reappropriating funds for other things like Wayne State University, which is in downtown Detroit, in what they call Midtown, in the Cass Corridor, has military equipment. Like it's a college campus. Why do you need militarized police for college students? 
you don't. And so taking that money, instead of giving, militarizing some campus police, putting that money towards education in our school system in Detroit that desperately needs it. So it's about having social workers and mental health professionals on the street. So if I see a woman walking up the street that's clearly having a mental breakdown, that she doesn't have guns drawn on her. This is what this is about. If people would just get over them damn selves, defunding the police might be problematic and hard for people who are like, what do you mean? They want to get rid of all police. And maybe, wow, what a beautiful world that would be <laughs> that we didn't need policing, that we could actually community police ourselves. And people who are privileged don't understand what it feels like to have people who don't live in your neighborhood, who don't live in anywhere near you <laughs> and don't care about any of the people in your block policing your block. I don't want to see police in my neighborhood that don't live in Detroit. And Coleman A. Young, who was our Black mayor for I don't know, 1994 till forever, like 20 years. That's all the mayor I knew for my whole life. Worked very hard to make sure that Detroit police and fire had to live in Detroit when he was the mayor. And now that's gotten a little, we're trying to get back to that, you know, because you should not be allowed to police in communities where you don't live. I do not believe. And that's what defunding the police is about changing the system and also destroying the system because it's flawed. It's flawed. It's biased. It works for privileged white men most of the time and poor brown black folks never. And so there's a disconnect, there's an imbalance that needs to be shifted. Defund the police freaks people out because they don't read, because they don't do the research. I mean, when I first heard it, I was like, yo, what's that? But I went and I had to read. I didn't just go magically know what they were talking about. I had to go online. I mean, it's called Google, y'all. It's real easy. You know what I'm saying? You can look it up. You can find out what they want, what the ask is. It's just this laziness with social media that drives me crazy, that people just aren't doing their homework. But language is important. And so, I mean, that's what President Obama spoke out about. We were just like, listen, you he was in office for eight years. And he, you know, there was that he could have defunded, could have changed things with policing. That didn't happen. That still haven't happened yet. And so I'm hoping with Biden Harris that they're going to have to at least address this thing. That they're, they're scared politicians. They're scared to say defund the police, right? Of course they are. But once they get past the language of it and they really get into the issue and the issue is imbalanced policing, the issue is my son getting stopped and frisked in New York City, right? Like they're stopping and frisking freaking 12 and 13 year old black boys and girls walking home from school. Like that stop and frisk New York, that's a mess. And so and we're targeted. And so that's, you know, I, I lived in New York for many years and I just I had never seen so many white police in black and brown neighborhoods. I lived in Washington Heights and I lived in Brooklyn. And I was like, look at all these police. I mean, it was like a police state. I had never, it's coming from Detroit, it's just not like that. It's still not like that. We actually could use a couple more police. I'm like, you know, sometimes I'm like, where are the police uh, here? But yeah, but the difference is in Detroit and it's not a perfect place. Our chief of police is imperfect. But I do, if I haven't pulled over, I tend to know people that are on the police, like they actually know who I am or they look like me. I mean, there's a lot of brothers and sisters who are on the force here. You know, people I went to high school with who are at fire, who are fire and police and work in all the things. And that's, again, just the beauty of kind of being in a space where you do have some sense of ownership of the city that you live in. But a lot of folks don't live like that. They live in places where they don't look like the police and they don't look like the teachers and very, very debilitating place to live. You know, like I was never that girl that I'm not going to send my son to school with a bunch of white kids. We did one year at a very prestigious, in quotes, all boys school here. And it was hell. It was horrible. It was horrible. Not because of the kids. She was the administration. He was fine with the kids. My son can get along with kids from any background, any color. He doesn't care. My son don't care about none of that. But yeah, administrators are, administrators are in education are a different thing. I love it. It reminds me, I mean, it's just so important. We've talked about representation and the importance of seeing people in power of all different looks, Yeah, you know, and how much that truly does matter to the existence of all of these organizations that influence our youngest generation yeah. coming up the pike. So I wondered if we could ask a favor because Misasha has taught, she has, I can't breathe as a t-shirt since Eric Garner, uh. you know, about her kids. She wrote a poem after Ahmaud Arbery, which she, I don't know if I was supposed to blow that up <laughs> in public because that was just like a poem she shared with me. I'm right, a poet. Okay. Like we both had a lot of emotions and she channeled it in this beautiful way. But your poem, I Can't Breathe. Yeah. Could you read that aloud to us? You're going to read the poem. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
this is a mother's perspective on it. You know what I mean? And just to set the stage while you're looking for it. I mean, we're moms, right? All of us are moms here. And we all love anybody who's listening. Like you love your children. Right. And there is a universal love there that we can understand. And yet I am the only one here who's a not black mom to white presenting children, right? Misasha is a not black mom to black kids and you are a black mom to a black children. And so given the history and the state of our country, those are huge differences. Yeah. It comes to the fears that we have for our children. And that's why I really want us to understand but you're so not a white mom, though. But I'm, I did say I'm a not black mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not black. <laughs> I didn't say I was a white mom. But if you said you were, I would be like, okay, um, because I just I've seen so many black people look like so many different things. You know what I mean? I don't. I just say okay. I take enough face value. Like if someone says they're black and they look, you know what I mean? I have black friends who have blonde hair and blue eyes. And they black, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't, you know, it's not defined by one. I don't, you know, I just take, people say they who they are, they are who they are. And that's it for me, you know what I mean? But it is different because I can't protect my son for the rest of his life, right? And he's only getting taller. And I only get more worried because my son is the son that says, oh my, if the police pull me over and they say this, I know my rights and they can't do, he's one of those smart black boys. Then I was like, no King, they don't like that. They don't like that you know your rights. They don't like, you know, I got to tell my very articulate, beautiful child, I just need you to just wait, don't talk and wait for me. And you call me and you wait for me to get to you and don't say anything to them. Like I've had to have those conversations, Sarah, that maybe you won't have to have with your children about how to talk to police when you're pulled over, what to do if they're gonna arrest you, how do you, you know, to stay alive. Survival tactics, you know, who wants to talk to their teenager? about that you know i don't but when i was in i wrote i can't breathe it literally took me i came home and i cried because when i was in ferguson i didn't cry i was traumatized i remember talib we went out for the second day to go back out on the streets again and he looked at me and he's like you want to go and i was like not really but let's go and i went back out again but it was hard because it was a lot and so i talk about what happened to me in, in ferguson and i can't breathe but the whole time I'm thinking about my son, Zah, both of them. And I talk about Omari calling me. So anyway, he was little then. God, he's 14 now. So I wrote this. He was like eight or something like that. Time just goes. And so, okay, I'm going to read it. It's, I can't breathe. I'm in Detroit and I can't breathe. The air is being sucked out of my city. The poor don't have water and everything new means no niggas. I can't breathe. There is a smoking gun down my throat with promises of a post-racial America. I can't swallow the chamber. It is stuck in 1967 and it keeps reloading after it pierces the bodies of our unarmed babies. I can't breathe because I'm being rushed on a sidewalk in the middle of a peaceful protest by a militarized police force in Missouri. They are yelling, I got one, I got one. I am half running distraught, searching for Talib's hand. Rosa is a few steps ahead. The air is thick and ugly and dense and I can't breathe. I'm being forced to lie face down on the cement in Ferguson with AR 15s pointed at my back. A long brown teenage girl is shaking in Rosa's lap. A young thick boy stands up. Anyway, I pull him back down and ask him to please wait. In Atlanta, a beautiful young activist tells me she is arrested at 6 p.m. and is driven around by officers till 2 a.m. before finally being booked with no explanation. We know who you are, they say, hoping to replace her breath with fear. And now she doesn't know how to tell her story of being kidnapped. She can't breathe. Who can push out fresh air in this country anymore? The rich, the corporation. We should all be choking to death from Fox News, processed foods, and white supremacy. My 19-year-old calls me after hearing I'm in Ferguson to ask me to please go home. And he hasn't lived with me in years, so I'm trying to figure out this geographic location of this place home, the place we should feel the safest. I'm wondering where all this hate has been, because when you where all this rage has been, because when we acknowledge race, you're called the racist. Mississippi, goddamn Missouri, feel hot as you. On Canfield, this young man smiles, says gold at me, beautiful, bright, and bravado. You from Detroit, you a poet, I saw you on the news. This is the place where Mike Brown's blood turned to, at, turned to roses. The stem legs of our boys, long and racing, always swimming toward the sun, easily tripped up, life interrupted. The ones who don't love you are armed. As much as we claim this is our land, the world minority is running our country. 
our sweat, our women, our mothers. We birthed this nation, burden on free labor and death with no reparations rate right in sight, insight. I need more insight and what this has to do with genocide, everything. We are here without choice. Many of us fatherless, some of us warm-blooded, West African, Dakota, Cree, Cherokee. We a place with no place. We are natives, beautiful somewhere people, noose flag poles and crosses and so many more little girls plus those four we will never forget. We are Moors, portrayed as whores, criminals. We the children of royalty. We red clay goddesses. We down south forces. We the trees with rings of stories. I can't breathe. I'm home from a terrifying place. And Octavia Butler, past future, past lives, scars we surface. I can't breathe. My son is four years from 12. And the park is his own planet where he plays freely. And he knows a seed leads to flowers if you plant it. He loves Bob Marley, Faith Ringgold, and Frida Kahlo. Walks with his head up and doesn't follow. Recites Baraka, sings the blues. He thinks wearing a belt is cool. He is simply a black boy with imagination built on a nation of poems and a mom that says don't mess with me. Cable is a winter luxury. So we don't get our information from the idiot box that I've always had already had to teach my son how to act when we're pulled over by cops. He's seen them wave and like my poems. He's seen them black and flirt and asked to call me on the phone. He's seen them white in Dearborn Heights, accusing me of running a light I did not run. Mommy, but the policeman is lying. That's the reality too, son. When I can't breathe, I cry in a parking lot, dropping you off at hockey camp, praying the white coaches and white kids won't try to suck the beauty out of your lungs. Pray your black ice skate fast past the chokeholds, the dangerous walks from the store to buy candy. I can't breathe, so I rush to get you from school daily. A collective mother's intuition always feels death moving around this winter in America clock. In these spaces where the air is thin, humanity is forgotten, an ancestral spirit is blowing hard, and fear has pushed you into a place you don't recognize. A forced language is pushed into your mouth, whipped across your back along the Ivory Coast on a ship called Jesus in the Congo, through the door, no return in an Alabama cotton field, in Chicago, in Cleveland, in Staten Island, in Brooklyn, in Detroit, when you look the world in its face after attempts to hijack your spirit, take your breath loosely. For Lucy, I will inhale God and blow my last wind into your body. Your exhale be the Holy Ghost for this land. I can't breathe. 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 So there's that. When I read that, you know, that because my oldest is eight. Oh, wow. Reading that, you know, and I was pregnant with him when Trayvon Martin was killed. And I was my second son was three months old when Tamir Rice was killed or and those are markers. Right. And you realize like just how people see your children is so different, you know, than how you want them to see your children and you can't protect them. And at some point they go from that cute stage because, you know, they're so cute. And then they go into the threatening stage. When they start looking like men. Yeah. And it's like in an instant. And those are those things that you want to hold them and protect them and you can't. And so that poem was so powerful for me. Thank you. But I can't say that, you know, some of the white folks who are coming to the table who are really trying to be better. I've been a part of a lot of conversations with white people in different spectrums, different financial brackets who are trying to do the right thing. Like, like, what is the right thing? Like, how do I contribute better, Jessica? Like my white friends asking me. What do you answer? Well, it depends on what they are. I said, don't send me money. <laughs> and someone there was just like, should we just give you some? I'm like, I don't need charity. I say support. Like if you have a business, think about who your business practices are. Who are you hiring? If you have a restaurant and you have white staff and everyone's cool looking white girls, you can't find some cool looking black girls to be white staff. You know, this is I've seen this in Detroit. You know, all the cool, funny colored, you know, hair, whatever, funky looking white girls all got the way. I was like, well, where's the funky, cool black girls with, with locks and colored hair? And you know what I mean? I just so thinking about your like hiring practices. What is your give back? I mean, especially if you're in black communities. Like even like, and then white folks who live around black people, like what are you contributing to the community except being looked at as a gentrifier? Like if you're coming into a black community, you're moving in, you know what that means for black community. You know, like are you just worried, you know, are you only concerned about, you know, walking your dog? Are you communicating? Are you saying hello to your black neighbors? <laughs> this is real shit. You know, like you could do minor things like that. Like just being fully aware of your privilege and, you know, but there's a ways like creating scholarships. There's ways to, I mean, we have to do it too. My, our own community has to do it. You know, I'm inside of schools in front of young people because the arts in the schools in Detroit, you know, are barely exist. My son goes to the one art driven, art focused 
school in the city of Detroit. There's a lot of artists, kids in the city. He's not the only one. There's only one school, Detroit School of Arts. And that's in Detroit proper, you know. This art and has been taken out of all of our schools. So our kids aren't painting, they're not writing poetry, they're not doing theater, not doing film film classes. You know, some of the more prestigious schools, yes, but I'm not, it should not, all around, the kids are not getting it. And so I have to go in and we have to go in as artists and lend our time and make sure these kids know that other things are possible outside of STEM. I can't stand STEM. I really can't. Like they have this, you know, everything is about science and math. Like every kid isn't science and math. You know, like some kids, every kid needs STEAM. Even the mathematicians need art. And so, you know, there's lots of fights, but I would say that if you're not doing anything, your silence is a part of the problem. So I appreciate people who are trying, who are like trying to be hosting conversations. I mean, it could just be like, get with your other races as friends, you know, and have a little, have some wine and, and like get it in, like, and have some real ass conversations about, you know, if you're a rich white boy with a bunch of rich white boy friends, like what have you contributed to making race relations better in the United States? What have you done besides privilege of being a white boy? Like, what have you done? Like human, humanity's got it. We have to become a people. You know, we've really lost sight of like, we're human beings on the freaking planet together. And we have to become better humans. You know, humanity has to grow as a whole, all of us. But some of us have to grow more because we're given so much and we don't even realize it. My son is privileged. Just so we're clear, <laughs> like he's a, has a very privileged existence. He doesn't even know, you know what I mean? Anything else. He traveled, he's been, by the time he was seven, he had traveled more than I had by 21. Been to more cities and states and definitely at this point, I mean, you know, more countries than my siblings. So, and my mother, you know, he's only 14. So he has a global perspective on the world, but all children deserve one. They all deserve it. They all deserve to see themselves in the world, no matter what they look like. And they should not grow up thinking it just belongs to them only. The problem is you have to tell black and brown kids the world belongs to you too, right? Amiri Baraka, a poet, one of my mentors, father of the Black Arts Movement would say, always writing his books, the world belongs to you too, Jessica. The world belongs to you too. But white boys grow up thinking the world is theirs. And that's the difference. Nobody has to tell them the world is theirs because they know it. White girls don't have to be told that they're beautiful because you grow up and every fucking magazine cover is a skinny white girl. You know, like no one has to tell them. You got to tell black girls, you're pretty, you're beautiful. You know, you're gorgeous. You're dark skinned. I wish, oh my God, you're the template. You've got to tell them that, you know, cause they don't, this world is not, this media is not gonna tell them that. And, but it's the truth. You know what I mean? They are the template, man, please. And they're beautiful. You know, my, my best friend, Charlotte, you know, very dark skin. And we grew up, you know, just watching how people treated me versus how they treated her. Like, you know, the colorism and the, even our own community that we have to deal with. And I wrote about it in my first book, The Words Don't Fit In My Mouth. I have a poem called Colorstruck about a guy talking to me a certain way. And then like me having to like really almost got into a fight with this guy at the club because he's made a nasty comment about my girlfriend. Like, yeah, I don't talk to women that look like that for that reason. They have attitudes, making this nasty stereotypical comment about darker skinned women. And God is not an American. I have a poem called Even the Light Skinned Girls Are Sick of the Light Skinned Girls. You know, and that's definitely a nod to my time in South Africa because of looking like this and the way I talk and the way I look really, really was confusing in South Africa, you know? So that's different. I mean, people who are listening have to, you have to just research apartheid and how they separate people. But a lot of people who look like me benefited from being considered colored, right? And so you're, you're benefiting. So you, do you want apartheid to stop if you're doing better? You know, Blacks are beneath you, you know? <laughs> like, you got to really look deep inside and inside yourself and figure out what kind of human being are you? And I would never want to benefit from a system like that pitting me against other black people. And that's what apartheid is and Jim Crow, same thing. Yeah. I consider myself a womanist, um, not a feminist, even though my ideas are aligned with feminism. But womanist was coined by Alice Walker, who I got, I read her very early. And it's womanist includes, because feminism doesn't always <laughs> deal with race <laughs> and also including black men. And so for me, black family has to be built up, not just women. 
I love women. It's important, but there's a divide. That's why Trump got into office the first time. It's because white women did what their husbands told them to do. Or yeah, they voted with their, they did what their husbands did. And there is the difference between feminism and womanism, like right there in that thing. And that I'm voting to keep my son um, healthy and, and alive too. I have not just thinking about myself as a woman, thinking myself as a part of the black family structure. And yeah, and I'm on Instagram and I'm on all those stupid things that I hate and love, hate love every day I'm on it. So find me, I have a Tuesday night show on Instagram at Tuesdays at seven o'clock Eastern when I feel like it, I usually say that. So sometimes it's gone, but for the most part in December, I'm rocking out. So I actually have a really cool guests on Tuesday, Liza Colby and Kia Fani Warren, they have a group Susu, they're rock and roll rock artists. Cause I, I work with a lot of black women who play rock. Well, I produced black women rock for 16 years. And so a lot of my friends and my gang are black women rockers. And so I'm bringing them on on Tuesday to talk about their work. I love it. You have such insanely <laughs> cool energy. And I'm like, what do you do? I take baths and showers. I take long showers. I talk to my guy friend. I like him a lot. I have a guy in my life right now that I'm a good friend of mine that has been really supportive during the pandemic. Oh, I take mommy breaks. Feel no, look, Sarah and Masasha, listen, you have to take your mommy breaks. Like guilt-free mommy breaks. I have one coming up in December because I need it. I've been doing this nonstop during the pandemic. I've been talking, I've been performing, I've been writing, I've been giving, I'm exhausted. But as far as my energy, I've been like that my whole life. So I was the same. I was like, when I was 19, I was on the hip hop scene here in Detroit. And I was like, I had my own show, Just Kicking It. And I was always going to be a journalist. And I was, I've always been able to do so many different things. So that's just my, but I do, you know, I work out and I do my yoga in my living room and, but try to be still, meditate, you know, try. I'm not like a yogi. I'm not perfect at yoga, but I do yoga. And I'm definitely not like my, that girl that's like meditating all the time either. Like I try, but like I laugh, you know what I mean? I try to stay, I'm goofy. I, I, the work is so serious that I'm not serious in real life. In real life, I'm silly. And my girlfriends, my good girlfriends here, and we make sure that we're finding joy in the small places. I think that's important during this pandemic, especially just making sure there's some joy. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 